Um, good morning. If you don't know me, if you haven't seen me before, my name's Simon. I'm part of the uh, leadership team of the church here. And uh, we're looking today at the next part of a series that we've been doing on the Gospel of Luke. And we're into chapter 17. We're just following on from a number of parables that Jesus has told that are particularly familiar parables to us. And now he goes into some what I would call quite challenging, quite head-on stuff with people. So where he's been, you know what parables are like. You have to kind of look behind them to see the meaning and, and all of that. I think he got to the point where he went maybe just, right, enough of that stuff. I'm going to give you a few things straight between the eyes. So I'm going to give you a few things straight between the eyes from Jesus. <laughs> And we're also going to move through this section quite quickly because we do want to break bread this morning. And I want us to be praying more for the coming of the Holy Spirit because I believe God's spoken to me about him wanting to do that in, in, in the church this morning. So we're going to actually move quite quickly through what I'm going to say. Uh, but what I'd like you to do is, as you hear some of these things, take a note of them. And there may be just one or two of them that particularly hit you. And you go, oh, actually, God's speaking to me through that. So I just want to uh, encourage you to have an open heart to what God might say through this. So let's read from the beginning of chapter 17 of Luke. So Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone around his neck, tied around his neck, than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. They used to, as a punishment, uh, as a form of execution of people, get these huge millstones that is a rough roughly the size the, the correct size of millstone to person i'm not sure about the sharks but never mind um they used to do this as a, a as a punishment for sin and jesus is clearly depicting something that the people in whether they were in the roman greek or syrian areas uh, in, at that time they would have known what this was like because they would have seen it happen and he's saying to them, if you lead anyone into sin, watch out. I, I just had a thought of the sorts of things that might be things that we might face where it comes to leading people into sin. We, you might think immediately, actually, that's not something that particularly I notice about myself. But are we even getting into areas of dishonesty, lying, cheating at times? Are we getting into areas of gossip? Are we getting into areas of undermining people and talking against them? Are we, are we criticizing others at the, at the kind of lowest level entry point for this sort of scripture comes those sorts of things. They're the start of what sometimes you can call a slippery slope that leads into worse and worse things as we start to get further away from Jesus. So for some of us, there may be a challenge. I, I, I've been recently in my job just facing a challenge in my office of 
a number of other people. I'm attached to a team in working in the university, and there's half a dozen of us in, in an office together. And I found my office really difficult to work in because there is an undermining attitude of the leader of that team. There is criticism of him. There is scheming going on at times. Uh, there is plenty of swearing going on at times. Although this week they decided they perhaps needed a swear box and they asked me if I'd like to look after it for some reason. <laughs> Interesting. Um, there are all those sorts of things going on. All that subtle stuff and very much visible stuff as well going on and undermining. Even a going round this leader to talk to others in the university in a way of trying to move him out or something like that even. So I found myself really challenged to how to behave in that sort of environment where that's happening because it's gradually dragging. It's dragging in that direction of sin. And I've spoken out at times. At times I've really stood with this leader because I know that he must be going through a really hard time being undermined. And I think that's a real challenge for people in their workplace when people are being like that. So... There may be some situations like that where, which you face and you need to pray into that. You need to not be like those other people. In fact, you need to do some things that are opposite. Are there some things like that for you at the moment in your, in your life? And clearly there are bigger things in leading people into sin than that. There might be pornography. There might be crime. There might be all sorts of things we can imagine. But just have a reflection on whether God, Jesus, through this scripture is saying something to you from that. He then goes on to say, in the second half of verse 3, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. And you may say, oh, it's just going on and on. Seven times in a day, and each time he's gone and he's repented and said sorry, and then he's gone off. And done the same thing again anyway. And then kept on coming back like this. And Jesus is clearly using the number seven. It's a sort of particular type of uh, particular number that he uses for a sort of completion. So he's saying, in effect, if someone completely, completely annoys you to the point of really, you know, seven times a day is like... If someone totally gets on your wick that day or sins against you completely all the time, you're still to forgive them. It's a sense of which you should forgive people whatever it is they do to you today or, or any day indeed. And I just wonder whether your tolerance level reaches that usually or whether Jesus might be talking to a few people and we might be part of them for whom our tolerance level wouldn't quite go that far. And we'd get to a point where we, we went, that's it, I stop. Two-thirds of the way through, I'm going to stop at number five out of seven. Five out of seven is quite enough sinning against me today. You know, Where are you at? Is there someone who you know who is getting at you that badly in the way they're behaving to you? Maybe there is. I think we can all imagine more extreme situations in a concentration camp, maybe, or in a highly abusive situation where this would be very, very real. But it's equally real for those of us for whom that may not be our current experience. And we just have people who 
who get at us, sin against us. Maybe these people, like, like I spoke of the leader in my office being undermined by people. You have to forgive again and again and again in that sort of situation too. So it's Jesus speaking to you out of that. And at this point, the, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. I wonder why they did that. You know, it's when, when you're being told to forgive, suddenly they say, increase our faith. What do you reckon? Do you reckon it's like, ah, ah, this is too much for us? Probably, yeah, something like that. This sort of whole approach of forgiving people to the nth degree, to the furthest point, was actually too much for these guys. But their response was increase our faith. I'm not sure that would be my natural, the, the thing I would say needed, I needed more of, shall we say. Maybe it's because they knew that they needed to be able to trust God in the midst of those sorts of situations. Maybe they, they themselves had just that awareness of their need for more of Jesus. Perhaps it was that. Not quite sure. And I love what he does. He immediately goes, well, you know, it's faith as small as a mustard seed. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, again, I assume this probably was a mulberry tree that was next to him or or around the area where he was... uh, where he was. Otherwise, why pick on a mulberry tree? Very strange. Why not pick on a mountain, you know, and, or something like that, something nice and big and chunky? Instead, you've got a mulberry tree. And when you look at this in various commentaries, you find the diversity of Christian thinking about the mulberry tree. <laughs> Apparently, some mulberry trees are more prone to worms than others' trees. And it could be about the worms and the nasty work of the enemy in your life and needing to get those worms out of your life and into the sea. Perhaps it was a moldy old, wormy old mulberry tree that he was looking at. Maybe. There are also some trees that are like the mulberry, but are called sycamine trees. And instead of a sweet fruit, they have a bitter fruit. And other commentators have said maybe it was one of those bitter-fruited ones that he was talking about because there was a bitterness in people's lives and it needed to be got rid of. Whatever it was, it was an interesting picture for him to be saying. All I can say is I believe that God may be speaking somewhat about uprooting things and getting them into another location. And therefore, there's a faith that we can have to see things move in our lives, in our church's life, and in, in situations that are, are around us. And that's what he's talking about. And the faith as small as a mustard seed, probably, mustard seeds were re, are, are really, really small. I nearly dug out a load of them because I use them. They're quite good in curries. And they're the thing you usually have to put in a curry when you're frying the oil, you switch the uh, wok on first. You put the mustard seeds in, and when they start popping, that's the perfect time then, isn't it? So I've got a load of mustard seeds at home. But the main thing about a mustard seed that I want to mention is that they're very, 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 very small. And I think what Jesus is probably saying here is it's actually not about quantity here. 
if you've got faith as small as a mustard seed, it's to have enough faith to trust in God for a situation. And I think that's what we often feel like, actually. We want something to move, something to shift in our lives, and something to shift. Maybe it's a sickness issue. Maybe it's a circumstance that's against us. And Jesus is just saying, if you will have enough just to trust in me and to have faith in me, you can speak to that situation and something can change. And I I suppose I've been reflecting just in recent days, my life last year, a number of you know that last year I changed jobs. So another another work illustration here. um, Has anyone drunk out of this so far? You have. I'll pour another one. Not that I'd... I'd, (laughs) There we go. No, I don't think he's contagious, is he? No. Um, I had wanted to change jobs for a couple of years um, and had been praying and asking God for that. And I wanted to come back to working for the university in Oxford um, and move away from a job that I had in Swindon uh, for a government body that funded all the environmental research that's, or most of the environmental research that's carried out in the UK. And I, um, I was praying and asking God probably about nine months before the change happened. Lord, I've got this mustard seed of faith. Would you bring a change? And he said to me, stay in Swindon and I will bless you. And I thought, okay, that's not really what I was expecting to hear. But I took hold of that and it was like taking hold of a mustard seed there. A very small word, I don't know how many words that is, a very small number of words that I took hold of. And on that, I just stood for a period of time, effectively. I kind of waited on God, trusting him that he'd said, I I wouldn't in the natural have said to myself, stay in Swindon because I will bless you there. It wasn't feeling like that in my job. Um, And I, I therefore knew that God had spoken to me. And I had this mustard seed. And I just trusted God with that mustard seed. And then the most bizarre set of circumstances happened last spring, whereby I ended up being offered the new job in Oxford at the same time as my previous employer in Swindon wanted to make me redundant and pay me off for being made redundant at the same time as I wanted to move jobs. And you're like, Lord, this is amazing. And, oh, we'll keep paying you all the way through the summer, even if you don't work for us. You can just leave and, and, we, and you can have a summer just working and we'll pay you. And you're like, this is absolutely astonishing. Praise God. That mustard seed, it worked. <laughs> it brought about a change in my life. And so much blessing. So much blessing. It wasn't just a small thing. This is a big This mustard seed had grown into a big tree, if you want to take that analogy a bit further. God had turned around my circumstances, answered my prayers, and done it in such a way that he just lavished on top all this extra money and time, really, which is quite a lot for most of us, I think. So praise God. So I'm now in a new job, and I'm on mustard seeds again. You know what it's like? You you see a change in your circumstances, like... I need more mustard seeds again. So just been praying again recently, just saying, Lord, I, I, there's some specific things that I believe God's shown me that I need to see happen in my job. But they're the sorts of things that I can't possibly do on my own, and I actually need God to do them. Which means that 
I need the mustard seed again. So I've got my mustard seeds out and I've got them and I'm going, Lord, would you change things? And it may just be on Friday afternoon at about four o'clock that one of my mustard seeds started to sprout. I was in one of those meetings where I've been working at trying to convince some people to work with me and they just not seen it and not seen it and not seen it. And finally, I got the chief exec and the chief operating officer of this organization around a table with me. And I said, this is the opportunity which we've got. And they went, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> oh, praise God. Oh, mustard seed. <laughs> we can see, I can see a way forward. And I just believe that God has opened up a new way for me. Have you got any mustard seeds? Have you got any mustard seeds that you've put in your back pocket and actually need to come out and you need to sort of fiddle with them whilst you're sitting there going, actually, I've got a mustard seed here. I've got something which God has spoken, which I need to see happen and I need to be reminded of that. Have you got some mustard seeds? Have you got some things that you're going through at the moment and you actually need to ask God for a mustard seed? In my previous situation, I I, I mentioned about God speaking to me about staying in Swindon. Do you actually need a word from the Lord or something like that or something, a picture or dream? Helen had a dream earlier she was talking about, which highlighted something for her. Do you need a mustard seed or have you got a mustard seed and you just need to bring it out again? Just encourage you. God likes to work through mustard seeds and they're quite inconspicuous. They're quite small, but they're very, very powerful. The mustard seed of faith. I'll read on. Because he then goes on to say, and this is completely, in some ways, completely different, but suppose, verse 7, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. I'm not sure whether this is a picture of a slave and an owner of a slave. It may be. But I wanted to pick something up that might, be, might get us inside. And I, about just the attitude of a servant, just the attitude of a slave. Slave and servant in this passage are pretty much interchangeable depending on which version you you look at do we in our walk with God have an attitude of a slave I'd say it's slave because servant still sounds quite nice whereas slave sounds not too good in our culture that we are just willing to go with Jesus and do what he says or are we the consumer Christians, those who will do what we want to do when we want and will turn up to church on a Sunday and go home again thinking we've done our bit. I think there's a challenge here for Jesus for us. Another of the challenges of what we're seeing here. So there's kind of a few challenges. I've laid them out this way. You could lay them out anyway, but don't lead others into sin. Forgive people when they're sorry. Use your faith, what mustard seed you have of it, and serve as duty. This is the first part of this section. And then he goes on with a story. And we'll we'll run through this bit fairly quickly because I want to highlight some things because I think they're important. But I think we want to move on fairly soon to, 
to asking God to move. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, this is verse 11, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, as you'd expect them to, I'm sure, and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. I often like Jesus' bluntness. Would you be willing to do that in the midst of a situation like this? I know that was the formal thing for them to do, but he doesn't exactly... uh, Hi guys, how are you doing? There's nothing like that. It's a go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, they were they must have been walking down the street or down the path, and their skin would have been healing up, and all of the stuff to do with the leprosy would have been coming off the skin, and it would have been becoming like new. What an amazing experience to have been one of those ten to have walked down the path towards the priests. They had to show themselves to the priests because there were 10 of them, so it would have taken them a while to go through the checking that they were healed and all of that. But 10 of them all walking along, getting healed like that, and looking at each other, no doubt, and going, this is amazing. Whoa. He didn't even have to touch them, did he? He didn't even have to send them a handkerchief or an apron or anything like that. He didn't have to send them anything. He just had to say, Go. And and given their credit, they went. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. In other words, the least likely of the ten to have done this. Because he was one who wasn't even meant to really, the Jews weren't even really meant to be mixing with the Samaritans and the Samaritans, different politics, different culture, different race, all of that would have meant that this was quite a difficult thing for him in some ways. But he was the one who did that. And Jesus asked, were not all the 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? I like the way he said foreigner. It sounds a bit drastic, doesn't it? But it means it. I mean, in the eyes of the Jews, that was what this guy was seen. Uh, then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. I thought it was Jesus who talked to him and that had made him well. But this man had shown faith probably in two things, I think. One was walking off to the priest's. And the second was coming back and thanking Jesus. That was all part of his faith making him well. What an amazing story. Jesus can touch our lives even when he's not here, even when we can't see him, even when we don't have a a handkerchief or an apron like Paul sent or or like other people have used in the 21st and 20th centuries for healing. Jesus can meet with us now. And that's wonderful, isn't it? But there's a thankfulness he's calling us to as well. And I think that's the key thing that stands out for me here. This guy was truly thankful. I I suspect it took a lot of guts for him being a leper to even come into that little area where Jesus was. 
but he did it because he was thankful. Are we thankful for what Jesus has already done for us? And will we continue to live in thankfulness? That's his challenge to us. And then he goes on. Once having been asked by the Pharisees, there's a little break here from the previous conversation. Once having been asked by the Pharisees in verse 20, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with with your careful observation. So they were clearly looking around for the signs there. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is over there, because the kingdom of God is within you, is within you, is present tense within you so Jesus is moving on and saying actually the kingdom of God's within you now we may be equally looking at the kingdom of God from a distance and saying when's it going to really happen when's the stuff going to really happen for these guys Jesus is saying it's happening now it's here and then he said to his disciples Time's coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Sounds like it's going to be obvious, doesn't it, here? But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation, which we know what happened there. Just as it was in the days of Noah... So also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in, in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the, re- the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man will be revealed, is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed And one bill will be taken and the other left. And two women will be grinding grain together. And one will be taken and the other left. And Jesus, where, where, Lord, they asked. And he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Not quite sure what that actually means at the end. Again, it's another unclear thing like mulberry trees. But it's clear that you'll see the signs from above. If you're looking at where's a dead body out in a desert or shrubland or whatever, if you see the vultures, you can be sure that there the dead body will be. And so Jesus is saying there'll be signs here. So he's talking about a kingdom, and we talk about this in church life quite a lot, the now and the not yet. We're in the now where Jesus is saying, the kingdom's within you. It's happening now. And then there's a not yet, which is very clearly, and he will come back and everyone will see. And some will be taken and some will be left. That's what Jesus is talking about. So we've gone through a whole chain of things, from things that might be a challenge to us, to the need for faith and thankfulness. 
and into the kingdoms within us now, and we can see God move. And I want us to spend some time breaking bread in a minute and remembering what Jesus has done. That's an opportunity, if there's anything that's been getting at your heart as I've been speaking, to put it right with Jesus or to put it right with other people around you. But there was also this day of Pentecosting. This isn't quite a picture of the day of Pentecost. I suspect it's some kind of do with lots of people with their torches or waving them. But there was this sense on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit really came and moved in people's lives. And there was these tongues of fire which came down on individuals. Most of the pictures you can get on the internet are far too cheesy for that. They all look very contrived or very beautiful. Whereas I thought this sort of picture at least gives some indication of this stuff happening in moving. And just, at the, just as I finish, I just felt God say to me this mor- yesterday as I was praying for this morning, I want to light the blue touch paper. And I thought, what's the blue touch paper mean? And I felt like this morning, God wants to light the blue touch paper in people's lives in our church as well. And the blue touch paper, this is the nearest picture I could get. And those of you who know me well will know somehow Lego features in many of the sermons I give. There's the blue touch paper and there's the rocket. And on the side you can see it says big one, which is great. And these guys are lighting the blue touch paper. It's the kind of the wick, the whatever you call it, that, that you light. And then it, it, it lights the rocket and the rocket goes off. And lighting the blue touch paper is a, a phrase that we tend to use around situations which become explosive. Emotionally quite often explosive. We often use it as an, a, a euphemism for stirring things up a bit too much in a situation. You lit the blue touch paper, didn't you, sort of thing. But I believe God wants to light a blue touch paper, which is his explosion in situations, him breaking through. And that's what he wants to do today. So I'll leave you with that.